0: a brief announcement before we begin. In your announcement bulletins, uh, there is an announcement about leading devotions at the um, Women's Correctional Facility in Rockville. If anyone has interest in that, um, see Beth. Uh, She has more information on that and has done that. So see Beth Elzinga. Um, The Lord calls us this evening to worship with these words from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That we may tell of all his works and make him our refuge. Let's join our hearts together in a moment of prayer. Father, You have heard our prayer. We pray that You would bless, strengthen, and use each one according to Your will and by Your power to bring glory and honor unto You. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's sing praise together to him from number 140. Number 140. This evening, we confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. You can find that on page four in the back of your Psalter hymnal. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our Psalm selection this evening is Psalm eighty-four. Psalm eighty-four is really a celebration of the privilege, the blessing of, of corporate worship. But you'll notice that it comes in; it comes with three stanzas. The first, uh, first four verses, really speak about the blessing of worshiping together as the people of God. Then uh, the second stanza, five through eight talks about the struggle, the struggle to get to worship, the struggle to walk through life with all of its tears, with all of its trials, which makes us eager to worship the Lord. And that leads us to the third stanza, which reminds us of how good it is that we serve the God whom we serve. He's the one who provides for us. He's the one who protects us. He's the one in whom we trust. All of this points to Christ, Right? He is the one who provides all that we need, who protects us, who keeps us, who strengthens us. He did that by undergoing that journey for us. By going through the depth of the sorrows and the troubles of life. Enduring the worst humiliation so that we could know the greatest glory. And so it's in Him and through Him that we worship. He is the embodiment of the temple, the embodiment of the tabernacle, and it's in him that we worship. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways of Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, or weeping, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is our song. This is... This, I said, it's a song of Christ, and therefore it's our song. So let's sing, uh, the first half of that, the first seven, seven verses, which we find in selection 159. Brief update, um, Bruce is improving. Had a really hard day yesterday, but today has been much better. He's been able to get up and, and begin uh, moving a bit. Uh, they're hopeful for him to be able to be uh, released uh, earlier in the week. Uh, maybe maybe Tuesday, Lord willing, but we'll see. Um, and Linda's dad was, as I said this morning, um, admitted Um, But they're still struggling to determine exactly um, all the treatments that he needs. So uh, please keep that in prayer. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our father. What a blessing and a privilege it is to gather together as your people on this day of rest. As in our Culture, We celebrate mothers this day. And the way that they nurture and care for their children. Our, our hearts are drawn to you. As we consider how perfectly you care for us. You never let us down. You never neglect us. You never fail to notice the needs that we have. And so we long to worship You and to know You better. Lord, You know our hearts. You know there are times when we don't possess that longing, though we should. You know that there are times when we're entirely satisfied with a lack of growth, with just going through the motions. Father, grant that we might never be satisfied to stall out but instead, make us, as the psalmist does, to pant after communion with you. To long to dwell in your presence continually, finding our strength and our help and our hope in you. Lord, you know the, the tears that we weep. There are many in this congregation who struggle. Who have pain, physical, emotional, spiritual pain. Those who have seen their children straying from you. Those who have wrestled with their own doubts and fears. Those who deal with unrelenting pain of the body. Those who feel caught up in their sin or in their circumstances that are so hard. And Lord, we can't fix those things. We can't dry our own tears. But you draw us onward through that valley of weeping. And you turn our tears of pain into tears of joy. You cause beauty to grow up around us. Even in the midst of our weeping. Father, your might and your goodness are beyond our ability to fathom. And so we pray that you would embrace and strengthen and comfort each and every one of your people. That you would cause us to see the ways in which you're working to bring us through that valley of weeping. So that though we sow in tears, we might. Reap with shouts of joy. We pray that you would use our struggles and our trials to draw us closer to yourself. And that even when it looks hopeless to our eyes, you would teach us that your strength is greater than anything we can fathom. That we might trust in you and find our trust not improperly placed. Lord, you know the needs that filled the lives of your people. We pray particularly for those who have been, those which have been made known to us for healing for Bruce and for Linda's father Daniel, for comfort and encouragement for, uh, Jamie as she prepares for her upcoming scan, for, uh, Dan as he prepares for his next, uh, chemo treatment. For others with long-term ailments. We pray for our members who are distant from us. We pray for those who are grieving and who are brought low this day. We pray for John's grandson, Barrett. Lord, we lay before you all of our needs and our struggles. We pray for our children as there are many of them coming toward the end of their school year. We ask that you would encourage them and allow them to finish strong. But most of all, Lord, we pray that You would use our circumstances and our trials and our struggles to draw us to You. That we might see that there is no comfort resting in the flesh. That there is no hope resting in our wisdom, our understanding. But that there is confidence when we rest in You. Lord, we pray for Your church throughout this land and throughout this world. We pray for, as our missions committee has directed our attention, for Pastor Malaboyu, as he labors in California. We ask that you would bless this congregation of seasoned saints whom he pastors, that you would comfort and strengthen and mature their faith, and that you would use them, to draw in those unbelievers of their community who have no hope, who have no life in them. We pray that you would multiply such works and that you would multiply the laborers for the field. Lord, you know the number of congregations in our federation that are without ministers. Father, we pray that you would provide men to serve, to proclaim your word, To lead the saints in serving. Not only among the ministers but elders and deacons. Equip and raise up men to these works. That the attention of your people and of your community might be turned toward you. And that more and more of the elect might be gathered. More voices might profess their love for you. More hearts might be filled with joy in your worship. We pray that you would protect your church. In so many parts of the world, your people gather together terrified. Terrified of the anger of the evildoer. Of the wrath of the enemies of God. They never know when their churches are going to be attacked, when their bodies are going to be targets, when their names and reputations will be brought into the dust. But you, Lord, are greater than our enemies, and you promise to triumph over them. So at this time, we pray that you would protect your people and that you would give them the courage to confess your name, to worship you, to openly profess Christ, knowing that the worst the world can do Brings us into the best. Brings us into your presence. And that you use weakness, us, to shame those who profess themselves to be strong. Father, we pray for the church in Ukraine and the countries surrounding it. The church has been scattered And decimated and brought to its knees. But Lord we know that you can strengthen it. And that you have been providing through the congregations from around the world. And especially from their neighboring nations. Lord we pray that you would allow that to continue. And that as the church rises up to care for those who are displaced. And those who are in need. And those who are struggling. That the gospel might go forth. That the love of Christ might be seen by those who have not yet turned to you. And Lord do the same here. We have seen in the past week such an outcry over the possibility, it boggles our minds, an outcry over the possibility that our highest court would rule it not a right to kill infants. And the unbelievers cry out in wrath At the thought that they might not freely kill children. At the thought that they might have to face the consequences of pursuing whatever feels right in the moment. Even though it cost the life of an infant. Lord, we stand in awe of their evil, of the depth of the depravity there. But we also know that they they lash out at those who love you. Because their anger, their wrath, ultimately is toward you. Toward your justice, toward your goodness, toward your holiness. And not being able to reach you, they, they lash out at your people. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom in the way that we respond to that anger. That we might respond with kindness toward their hatred. That we might respond with love toward their wrath. That in us they might see the long-suffering grace of Christ. Who one day, if they will not repent, will judge them. But who now offers them life, if only they will repent and bow before Him. Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to take this opportunity to reach out to their hearts. To call them to repent. To urge them to find peace with the one at whom they are so unreasonably angry. And Lord, help us to reckon with our own sins as we deal with Daniel 9. Use it, we pray, to enable us to humble ourselves. To see that we have no cause to stand proudly before you or before the world. But that we rather should humble ourselves, seeking your mercy continually. Acknowledging our guilt and trusting in you. Lord, we thank you that we're able to trust in you, that you are a sun and a shield, that you withhold no good from those who walk in Christ. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look together to God's word from Daniel, Let's stand and sing the remainder of Psalm 84. We find that in Selection 160, and we'll sing all the stanzas. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read the first 19 verses of Daniel 9. This is Daniel's prayer. Next time, Lord willing, we'll see how God answers, how God responds to this prayer. But there's quite a few lessons that we can find in this prayer that are helpful for us. Daniel writes there, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. With fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those who are around us. Now therefore, O O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. Beloved people of our God, this passage is an interlude of sorts in the book of Daniel. First half of the book is active, right? Talks about what Daniel saw, what he experienced, how he interpreted visions and signs to the kings, first of Babylon and then of Persia. Second half of the book is filled mainly with visions that Daniel saw and the significance of those visions for the kingdoms of the world and for the people of God. It's a very active book. It's filled with God doing things, with God showing things. But suddenly we have here not a doing, but simply a speaking. There is, in this passage we've just read, no glorious vision, no unheard of acts, no massive deliverance, but simply a man falling to his knees before God, and pouring out his heart. But you see, we need to to see that. Because in the midst of all the activity of this book, it's really about the life of God's people. The life of his people in exile. And how they are to relate to the world, but also especially how they are to relate to God. Now, Daniel has been seeing these visions. He's been given this insight that shows a number of things, but especially the sovereignty of God over the course of the nations and the kingdoms of the world. But he's just seen a vision that shook him to his core because he's longing for a restoration of God's people. He's living in exile because of the sins of God's people. He's longing to be restored. And suddenly he sees this vision, as we saw in chapter 8, that shows that even after the restoration, God's people would compromise again. They would turn again. They would experience suffering yet again because of their sin. And Daniel's undone by that. It humbles him deeply. Evidently, it sends him back into the Word. He's been studying the prophets. And in the books of Daniel, he perceives that the time for Israel's punishment is 70 years. Now, when this text is written the time that it relates, the Median Persian Empire has overtaken babylon that means daniel himself has been in exile for almost 70 years he's an old fella he's be honest he's going to die in exile unless god does something absolutely amazing and unexpected daniel sees however that the time of exile is nearly to a close but something's lacking In Jeremiah chapter 29, and you'll recognize part of this, the prophet writes, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We sometimes see that on greeting cards. I know the plans I have for you. We uh, put in the card written for a high school graduate. Not really all that fitting for a high school graduate, unless they're going into exile. Uh, God's reminding them that they're about to endure a really, really hard time. It's going to be hard for them to understand it. It's going to be hard for them to live at peace with it. But they need to remember that God has planned all of this, and that the end of it all will be good. In 70 years, he's going to restore them. But he says, at that time, when the exile is drawing to a close, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. In other words, God has planned that he's going to restore Israel at the end of 70 years, But before He restores them, He's going to restore their heart. They're going to seek Him. They're going to humble themselves before Him. They're going to acknowledge the sin that they they as a people had committed and the righteousness with which He judged them. And seeing that, Daniel says, that's our calling. We need to acknowledge how we have sinned. We need to acknowledge His righteousness to punish. Kids, it's kind of like when your parents send you to your room because you've just done something wrong. Maybe you've acted really cruelly toward a sibling. Or you've spoken very disrespectfully to your mother. and you get sent to your room and after an hour, dad walks in and says, do you, do you know why you've been sent in here? No. I guess you need to stay here for longer. Right? That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for humility. He's looking for you to acknowledge, yeah, I shouldn't have spoken that way to mom. That was wrong. Right? And that's what God's looking for at the end of the exile. He's looking for humility. He's looking for an acknowledgement of their sin, of the righteousness, of the punishment. And so that's what Daniel leads the people in doing. This text shows how a discerning saint that is one of god's people who understands what god desires of us how a discerning saint seeks covenantal restoration i'll explain that in a few minutes but discerning saint seeks covenantal restoration and it starts out by confessing collective guilt that's what we see in verses 4 through around 7 although it's a little fluid now notice what Daniel does at the very beginning of his prayer. Immediately, he sets the proper tone. God said back in Leviticus chapter 26, Israel's restoration from captivity would come if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me. And he says, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then he would restore them. So Daniel comes with this counsel in his heart, and the first thing he says to God is marked by humility. His, his prayer begins in the Hebrew "Ana Adonai." It's this heartfelt plea, "Dear Father," right? He's he's confessing their subjection, dear Lord, and then he confesses the greatness of our God. Oh Lord, the great. And awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. In other words, you are faithful. You are righteous. You do what is right and what is good at all times. Unlike us. You see, he confesses the greatness of God right off the bat. He's going to get back to that. He's going to confess that at great length. But he starts out with that as a contrast to Israel. Now we need to Notice several aspects of the confession that we see in these first few verses. First of all, we need to see that it's a collective confession that he speaks here. It's collective first in those for whom he speaks. Notice the pronouns. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. Daniel is identifying himself with his people. There's no self-centered individualism in this prayer. He recognizes that he is a member of the church, that he is a member of Israel. And so he confesses that this is how we have sinned, how we have acted. It's also collective in its scope. What I mean by that is, if I said right now, we have sinned, who's we? Your first thought's going to be, well, we in this room, this group of people, right? And Daniel's certainly praying for himself and the Jews that he knows. But he's explicit. It's not just us. It's our kings. It's our nobles. It's our fathers. It's all of the people of God who went before us. Daniel understands, you see, that it's not just the Jews that he knows in Babylon who have sinned against God. It's those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they committed against you. See, Daniel understands what we tend to forget. There is no limited liability in belonging to the church or any group. If you belonged to a, a political activism group and that group uh, planned a march and the march devolved into a riot, even though you didn't, you know, throw a brick, you didn't, commit any violent acts, because you're a member of that group, you bear some measure of responsibility for what the group has done, right? And the same is true with the church. The same is true with the people of God. Daniel had lived a life that was largely righteous in God's sight, and yet as a member of Israel, he openly confesses sin. He openly confesses rebellion because he's part of the people of God. And he doesn't pull any punches, does he? Listen to the litany of guilt just in verse 5. We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly, we have rebelled, we have turned aside from your commandments and your rules. He doesn't seek to qualify any of it. He doesn't say, you know, we did pretty badly. I mean, we didn't do that bad, but no. No qualification at all. We did it all. And we knew better. Our kings, our rulers, our fathers, they heard the word of the prophets. You were kind enough not only to send your law by Moses... But then when we violated that law, you sent the prophets to draw us back. And when we didn't listen to them, you sent more prophets after them. We knew, we heard, we understood, and we rejected it anyway. And therefore, he says, you are righteous and we are rightfully shamed. God did everything he should have done. He promised that if they rebelled against him, if they served false gods, if they refused to show faith in him, he would punish them. He would punish them in very specific ways. And that's exactly what he did. Therefore, the exile was to Israel's shame, but it was to God's glory. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but but I want to suggest to you that Daniel stands here as our example. This should be our prayer. And you say, well, how is that? This land in which we live, it was founded for a lot of reasons. I don't want to get all revisionist. I mean, you know, there were plenty of people who came to America simply because it was a good place to make money, sure. But the bulk of those who early began settling this nation came here so that they and their children and their children's children could live and work in a way that was worshipful of God. They saw in this place an opportunity to devote all of life to God. There was no two kingdoms idea there. They they believed that their, their family, their work, their community, their government, all of it should serve the Lord, should be regulated by God's word. And in large part, it was early on. And the church has allowed it Go astray. We know how terrible a job the government does in, well, a lot of things. But you know those things that it does so badly in? Those are things that God never intended government to do. Those are things that our Constitution never intended government to do. And they're doing it because God's people allowed it. The government said, We'll take care of the poor. And the church said, Yeah, less for us to do. Cool. The government said, We'll school the children. The church went, I guess we don't have to worry about that now. And maybe you think, "But, but that's not us, right? We're giving to benevolent causes. We're schooling our own children. Well, sure, now we are. But we are part of the church. Maybe you think, well, we've left those compromisers. Some of the churches with which our forefathers were affiliated. When they wouldn't turn back to God's word, we left them. Sure, okay, but then maybe there are other sins we're guilty of. No, maybe really, right? I mean, we're part of them. What they sin- where they sinned as Christians, we sinned also. But also, we have our own unique sins in which we've engaged. Looking down on those who aren't part of the church. Scorning those who break the Sabbath. Not showing mercy to those who have sinned. And maybe would like to turn from it. But they don't know where to turn and they look at us and they think, I'm not going to go there. No sympathy in that quarter. In other words, our calling is not to stand self-righteously by. Oh, we're good at that. The internet's made us great at that. Oh, look at those compromisers over there. And look at those evangelifish. And, and we mock those who don't do as well as us, who don't know God's word as well, who don't stand as firmly. And we look at the government and we throw all the stones that we want to and the politicians and the social justice activists. But we don't do so well as what Daniel's doing. And that's acknowledge our sin. And acknowledge our guilt. And acknowledge that where this country is, with its ungodly leaders and its ungodly ways, is exactly where we deserve to be. That God has been righteous, that He hasn't poured out on us punishment that was undeserved. Now please understand, I'm not equating the country with the church. But the country is filled with the church. And where the country has gone... It's gone in large part because of where the church has gone. And we need to confess that. We need to acknowledge that. We need to own the corporate responsibility of the church. But then, starting around verse 8, there's a slight shift. Daniel repeats the guilt of God's people, but now for a different purpose. He wants to recall who God is and what God is like. And in doing so, he's seeking to discern divine faithfulness. That's our second point here. Notice the unfaithfulness of Israel that he recalls here. Look at verse 9 and following. To the Lord our God belong mercy and faithfulness, for we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. We have not walked in his laws. We have not followed the prophets. We have transgressed your law and turned aside and refused. To obey your voice. He, he just harps on the sins of God's people. We've done exactly what Moses told us not to. Exactly what the prophets warned us we must not. We have been rebels. And yet it's precisely there that we see God's faithfulness. Moses, he warned them in Deuteronomy twenty four or 29. That if they rebelled against him. If they didn't uphold his commands, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to his land? What caused the heat of his great anger? In other words, they would see the punishment that God poured out upon Israel, and they'd be like, what did they do to anger him? Why would God do this? And then, he says, the people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are at this day. God had offered them life and blessing eternal. He had offered to... To provide for them spiritually and physically. To provide for them in the city and in the country. In their bread basket and in their family. He had offered to to keep their enemies far from them. To make them lenders to many and borrowers from none. But they refused. And they worshipped gods that were not. And they worshipped the things of the flesh and the products of men. And so God did exactly what he told them that he would do. Verse 12. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us this great tragedy. Everything that Daniel saw as a youth, all the wrath of God that he poured out on Israel was exactly what God had foretold, had warned about. The Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Do You see the message there? in their punishment they see the faithfulness of God he promised to bless them if they served him in faith he promised to bless them if they kept his commands demonstrating that they trusted him alone but if they wouldn't he promised I will do this 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 and this and that's exactly what they did that's exactly what the exile was God is trustworthy God is true what he says he will do that he will do Now, that might not seem like a good thing for somebody who's in the exile. But remember, God didn't promise just to punish them. He also promised what we heard in Jeremiah 29. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Just as surely as he fulfilled his promise to punish them when they rebelled, so surely they could know that he would fulfill his promise to restore them when they repented. So as harsh as was that punishment, it was also a comfort to them. Because just as God was faithful then, there, so he would be faithful here and now. Again, brothers and sisters, this is a comfort for us. Because God has promised that when we turn to Him, when we repent of our sins, He will restore us. Young people, you must always remember that. You will mess up. You will do exactly what your parents warned you you must never do. I'm not urging that, by the way. But there will be times that you find that you did exactly what you shouldn't have. And the consequence was just what they said it would be. And you think, how can I ever bring it to them? How can I ever confess that? You shouldn't worry about your parents that much. Worry about God, right? Their punishment is but for a moment. His can be for eternity. But here's the blessing. He promises as surely as as there's punishment for sin, there's forgiveness for confession. No matter what we have done, no matter how we have sinned, what commandment we have broken, if we repent, if we confess He will forgive, He will receive us, He will restore us to His favor. Doesn't mean there might not be consequences. Oh, there might be. But He will restore us. By the way, as a church our calling is to demonstrate that. Let none of our children ever say that They felt compelled. They had no choice but to have an abortion because they knew the church wouldn't receive them. The church wouldn't forgive them. No. It's wrong to give in to the lusts of the flesh, bring about a child outside of wedlock. But repent and you are received. You are forgiven. If God forgives them, how can we not, right? And that's what Daniel's seeing here. God is faithful. God will receive. God will restore. God will bring them back. If only they will do what he commanded and repent. And so finally he pleads for God's promised compassion. That's our third point. Notice the shift in his prayer in verse 15. He's been recalling God's faithfulness and Israel's rebellion. And then with a word. And now... He shifts his focus to God's faithfulness to deliver. And now, you who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. That's how God always identifies himself before Israel. The God who delivered you out of Egypt. He does that in the law. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. He does it several times in Leviticus. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now be holy as I the Lord your God am holy. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt that you might not be their slaves. Through the Psalms, through the prophets, through the prayers, Israel always confessed God as their deliverer from Egypt. You're the one who delivered us from our slavery, but now, says Daniel, we have done wickedly. We have sinned. We have enslaved ourselves. Restore us again. Turn away your wrath for the sake of your righteousness. Why? Because we bear your name. We are your people. Restore us for your name's sake, for your glory. In Leviticus 26, in Deuteronomy 30, God promised that when God's people... When Israel did what Daniel here is doing, repenting of their sin, seeking him truly, serving him again, God would restore them from the consequence of their sin. And so that's what Daniel's looking to. Notice intentionally, openly, he says, we're not trusting in men. We're not trusting in ourselves. We're not trusting in the government. Verse 18, we do not present our pleas to you, before you, because of our righteousness. Right? It's not on the flesh that we're trusting, but your great mercy. That's where Daniel sets his hope. Because he sees there is no hope in men. There is no favor in men. There is no deliverance in men. If they are to be delivered from exile, if they are to be reconciled to God, it has to be on the basis of God alone. And he doesn't ask as a cold, unfeeling requisition, like you know this is this is what you promised in your law, we're doing that, so no, he pleads because even though God has promised, he will restore his people, Daniel recognizes our sin is great, our sin is extensive, we can't presume upon your mercy, we don't deserve it, but he begs, O oh Lord, hear, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, pay attention, and act, delay not." For your own sake. He's passionate to see Israel delivered. Now understand Daniel's old. He's not going to make that trip back. That's a long and hard journey. But he's passionate for the sake of God's people. And he's passionate for the glory of God. Because he knows that when Israel is restored. When they're gathered again. They're not just in one place. They're throughout the Babylonian Empire. Throughout the Persian Empire. And when God brings them back from all corners of the empire and restores them to Jerusalem and shows His favor to them, people are going to notice. Read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They did notice. And they responded. And that's what Daniel longs for. He longs for God's name to be lifted on high by the the kings of the empires again. And ultimately, that's the purpose of Israel, that's the purpose of the church. That people might see how great is our God and give Him praise. Now that's all interesting, but what's that mean for us? Well, look around you. Again, we live in what has begun to be called the post-Christian era of America. What are we to do about that? Folks, we're to pray and to plead that God would restore His church. That God would cause His people to again turn to Him. That God would give them again the ability to influence the world, to be salt and light the way they once were. We can't do it by our power, by our wisdom, by our plotting and planning. But He delights to do what we can't. We don't know what the future holds for America or for the church in America. But we know that for far too long the church has neglected to live before the world in a way that openly confesses God. And we need to long for that to change. That doesn't mean, just to be clear... That we're praying that God would put Christian rulers on the throne. That God would put Christians in the legislature and in the courts. That'd be nice. but That's not what we're praying for. We're praying that the church would again be the church. That the church would become known as those weird people who actually forgive those who offended them. That the church would become known as those people who have marriages that last and don't devolve into divorce the way everybody else's do. That Christians would be those people who fill their houses with children and then when they're done having children, they welcome in the children of other people who can't handle their own children. That Christians would be the ones who are there to lift people up out of the gutter and to restore them to life. The gospel transforms people. It transforms them inwardly, it transforms them outwardly. And if the gospel's transforming us, we're going to reach out with that power into the world and people are going to see the difference that it makes. For a long time, that hasn't been happening, where it's been happening in very small doses. But we need to be praying for more of what we see with RMS, uh, Reform Mission Services in Kentucky. God's people rising up and going to those who have nothing and lost even that. And rebuilding for them. Not because we want to get paid. Not because we want our name in lights. But, but to show them the love and the mercy of Christ. We need to be seeing more of that tiny little group that stands in front of the abortion center in, in uh, Grand Rapids every time they're open. Praying that God would bring an end to that atrocity. Calling out, begging those who are going in to please stop, to come. We'll help you. We'll stand beside you if only you'll spare the life of that child. Shouldn't be five or six people. That should be five or six hundred. We need to see, or we need to be showing the world, the power of Christ, but we can't do it by our strength. We can't do it by our conviction. It's only if God restores us. But if He restores us, then it's not to our glory. It's His. And so that needs to be our longing. That needs to be our deep desire. This prayer Daniel prays, it's a prayer the church needs to pray today. Because it's a prayer that leads us to humble ourselves before God, confessing our collective guilt of which we have an abundance. Discerning His faithfulness. All we need to do is is look at what God did in answer to this prayer, in bringing His people back to Jerusalem, in laying the seedbed for the coming of Christ. But then pursuing the compassion that God has promised. If we do, God will hear. God will respond. And God will be glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful. Time and time and time again. You provide the healing and the forgiveness and the help and the restoration that we're powerless to provoke that we're powerless to accomplish on our own. Lord, Your church in this place, on this land, has for far too long lived like those of the world, living for the pleasures of the flesh, the pleasures of the moment, the joys of this life. Forgive us. Humble us. Teach us to long for something better, something greater, something more enduring. By the mercy and the faithfulness that you have shown and that you have promised. Restore your church. Beginning with the attitude that Daniel shows of deep humility. Seeking person by person by person, church by church by church, seeking your deliverance, your restoration, your mercy. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that Daniel reminds us here. Despite all the sins, all the failures, all the Absolutely unthinkable rebellions that Israel committed, God still was willing to receive them. God's mercy is more abundant than we can fathom. It's good for us to confess that. So let's do that by standing together, singing number 458. Come ye disconsolate. Come you who are deeply in need of comfort. Wherever you are, wherever you languish, wherever you're laying in the midst of your misery, and know that you will receive mercy from the Lord. offering this evening is for the uh, devotional and evangelistic work of uh, Dave Means. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to take part in this work by Brother Means. Uh, We pray that you would bless the offering that we take up, that it might support and advance this work, bringing your word of life to many who remain in the darkness of sin. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this evening is number 329. Oh